Welcome to episode 11 of the Precision Microcast. This week, we're talking about a very unique and extremely precise laser machining solution, as well as a big ramble about grinding. Adam and I both hope that you enjoy this episode of the Precision Microcast. Today we'll be talking about an interesting laser technology from Germany in the form of laser turning. This is a machine offered by GFH Lasers. It is the GL Smart. And when I first saw this, I thought it was a, another laser Swiss or a stent laser. And this is actually something a little bit different. It is using a laser to turn small parts. And along with turning, can drill and cut and engrave. Yeah, when you sent this through to me, I thought it was actually something closer to the first laser we did in the first episode. And the more you read about it, the more you realize this is a pretty unique offering in the laser industry. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me in terms of capacity to make a complete part of something like a Williman or a Bumotech. Just it has subspindle, tilting axis, bar fed, and so for the right part, you can have one and done from bar stock, which is very, very appealing. And then one of the interesting things with a laser technology like this is you don't have any tooling associated with it either. Mm, yeah, the biggest draw card for me is that the setup time is so low when you have a solution like this. You have work holding and how you're going to fixture the part. But even with this machine, that's pretty straightforward as well. It seems like you could use one set of collet holding systems to turn most or to machine most of the parts that you would. But having a setup time that's in like the sub 10 minute or 20 minute range for a wide range of complex parts is pretty appealing. Like I know that with the R04, there's some of the components that we overlap with this machine especially with the small diameters if you don't include the fancier laser specific features but for me to change parts over on an r04 you know can take easily up to three four hours to get the right collet to get everything dialed in to change all your inserts write the new program make sure that your part off is okay and you know how you're catching the part and everything that's all seemingly handled by a solution from the gfh and, and perhaps we're looking at it optimistically, but it does seem like a lot of the a lot of the burden of setup is reduced by eliminating cutting tools. Mm. How the system works is interesting. It rotates the laser beam or wobbles it, if you will, and it almost reminds you of a tricoidal or a high-speed milling tool path. Mm. How there's just a very small amount of engagement, and so it will kind of rotate or wobble the beam as it traces the profile of the part, removing material from the shaft. Mm. That same laser then can be used for hole drilling and, and precision cutting through slots and such. And apparently in doing the, the rotation versus like a solid concentrated area of burning, it keeps the heat out as well. It's just taking very, very light ablating removal passes. Mm. And obviously the biggest benefit to a machining strategy like this is no deflection. I mean, your deflection is probably on the same order of magnitude as the airflow around the part. If you go onto their website, especially under the laser turning or you know, attempt this laser drehen, laser, it's because it's German, it's a bit different on their URL, you'll see the photos of their product images, like turning pins like that, that are on the scale of 0.1 millimeter, even without complex features, like they've got three flats milled into it. That's atrociously difficult. What they're claiming is that the roundness and the form accuracy is in the order of microns, which is really, really impressive. And uh, surface finish as well seems to be 
very, very good. But it kind of reminds me of a wire EDM's surface finish mm. claims where mechanically it's very smooth, but it has that matte texture to yeah. it. But, you know, I, I don't suppose a lot of these parts would get used as is. I'm sure there's some kind of secondary operation, whether it's tumbling or plating. Mm. Or, I, I suspect medical is the key use case for a lot of these machines. But a little out of my wheelhouse, but I, I'm always interested in laser technology for, like I mentioned, just the, the lack of tooling and accessories to go along with it, which is something I've kind of enjoyed with my new grinder. I was already pretty well tooled for a grinder, so when you mm. buy a pretty expensive machine, generally you have 20 to 40% of that machine cost in holders and accessories, and that hasn't really been the case. More or less bought a couple wheels and I was off to the races. And so that's what I think is really cool about lasers and why I keep looking at them and trying to find something that would work for my shop. Yeah, the the tough thing is the application here. I You mentioned medical and I think that those sample parts are sort of like eerily reminiscent of some of the medical parts that you'd see maybe in a medical pump or in some sort of dosing device. But from my very little exposure to how these sorts of specialty machines are made and designed. It's it's usually for a very large customer that has a complex problem. And I wonder that, you know, if, if we, our simple folk get a machine like this, I wonder how simple it really is. Is it turnkey for everything or is it just uh, as simple as it sounds? I know that there's been machines out there that are made for a single purpose. And I think like we talked about, about the, uh, the five axis milling machine from, um, or, yeah, that's right. So that was made for a process and then it was like marketed after the fact. And, uh, I do wonder, is this the same, but yeah, but, uh, we'll be sure to throw some videos up on the Instagram page of this running not a ton to talk about just simply because there isn't an enormous amount of information on their website other than what it can do. It just seems like a kind of a quiet technology and uh, haven't seen a whole lot about it yet, but it, uh, it was interesting to me and I wanted to share it. How did you find out about the, the machine? Uh, I still enjoy old school trade magazines. <laughs> uh, so I am signed up for one called Production Machining. And they had an article on that, so. Oh, wow. Part of the, the company that owns Modern Machine Shop, they have a bunch of subspecialties. And I signed up for them when I was still, like, working for other people. Just, I I like flipping through and seeing what my options are for, like, things to purchase. Like, I had to come up with a lot of solutions for parts cleaning when I worked at Superb. And so I, I had, like, a subscription to a parts cleaning magazine and <laughs> nowadays you know i don't really pay it much attention and and so uh, i i uh they're free so i encourage people to you know find a few that they think uh, have their interest and sign up for them it takes five ten minutes to read the articles the rest is just adverts but uh almost every time there's there's good information uh, another one I really, really recommend is Cutting Tool Engineering. Mm. And that one has a segment almost monthly, and it's um, Ask the Grinding Doctor. And oh. his name's Dr. Jeffrey Badger. And he's kind of an expert. Well, I guess he is an expert on uh, cylindrical grinding. And 
I don't do a lot of cylindrical grinding, but there are some overlapping areas with surface grinding. And uh, so I just always enjoy reading the periodicals and seeing what he has to say. Yeah, those trade magazines are incredibly useful and they're sort of in the same vein as tooling catalogs. Mm-hmm, yeah. Where you flip through a catalog and you see a little column or like an aside of some quite new technology that hasn't really made it to mass production. Like the Sumitomo catalog, if if you guys have a Sumitomo rep, strongly recommend picking up the, the full non-abridged catalog and thumbing through it because, uh, yeah, especially in the last part, there's a section in the 2020 version um, on one of their subsidiary companies called ALMT and it's all about their diamond tooling. And uh, some of that tooling you can't even buy outside of Japan, but they still spend a little bit of time and money advertising it in their catalog. So it's it's really, really fascinating. So one more thing that drew my attention with the company was their micro-drilling uh, applications they had. And recently I've had um, quite a few micro-drilling parts and requests and it's it's tough. Drilling small holes is really, really hard. And the photos they have on the micro-drilling page are really something spectacular, especially when you look at how burr-free the edges are. So often you can drill the hole, but if it's burr-free, it's a completely another story. And um, I find myself with a couple of parts of going back to, like taking the part out of the machine and lapping the face of the part to get a crisp edge on the holes. And that works, but it only works if you can have access to that area of the part and are able to lap it. Um, Otherwise, it gets really tricky and you have to make sure the drill is in really top notch. And if it's not, that it's running out and so on and so on. Whereas this seems like really the perfect way to drill small holes. And some of the... um, the actual specifications of the holes that they're drilling are pretty incredible. They said in one of their um, documents, they have a process stability of plus or minus one micron of over a whole day's production on the hole diameter. And say what you will, but I don't think that's reasonable to achieve in a more traditional machining way. Um and coupled with the fact that, you know, it seems like a pretty hands-off process for getting rid of burrs and dealing with small tools in general. Um, yeah, one day maybe. <laughs> yeah, one day is right. I, I can't imagine this is cheap technology. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the micro cutting is interesting as well. I don't know if they offer anything outrageously different than other companies but their accuracy of their machines seems to be like the frame that the laser head rides on Mm. seems to be uh very very good when compared to other laser builders just really really crisp edges on everything really consistent thermal characteristics of the machine so very impressive machine builder yeah and the fine blanking tab as well is quite good because it shows the bane of all watchmakers parts which is the escape wheel and um if you can get away from cutting that escape wheel with normal cutters and do it with some other machining process then you've done pretty well for yourself um that part has a lot of challenging uh geometry and a lot of challenging tolerance call outs and if they can achieve 
good surface finish and good positional accuracy on that part, hats off. So if you want to see some cool laser technology with laser turning, uh, go to GFH Lasers and uh, give it a look. Don't know how available these machines are. Uh, I've never seen one in the U.S. as of yet. So, um, But really interesting. Uh, they even have dual spindle offerings. Um, so you could basically double your output in the same given footprint. So this podcast, we've got something slightly different. Our history and precision problem segments are sort of blurred a little bit. In short, we're going to be talking about grinding. Both of us actually have new grinders. Adam's is far more advanced than mine, and it's his second grinder he, I guess, has, but not nearly the second grinder that he's operated, and whereas mine is definitely the first I've operated and owned. So... This segment is going to be structured in a little bit of a apprentice and teacher uh, sort of way where I've got a lot of questions and I'm sure that you guys might have some of the exact same questions that I have or at least at one point in your careers had. And outside of just the basic questions that we've got, we've got some interesting topics that we can branch off on. And depending on how long this whole process goes for, there might be some room for some more questions that you guys can throw our way that we can include in another episode. But we're going to try to sort of glance over a bunch of different areas. I missed out on my apprenticeship completely. I didn't have a grinding apprenticeship and I'm not a tool maker. So in many ways, this is my online apprenticeship with Adam. What do you reckon, Adam? Uh... I don't know. It's a lot of hand cranking. He didn't miss too much. But, uh, I had to do thirty-five hour or thirty-five hundred hours of grinding for my wow. apprenticeship, um, and so yeah, I just it, you learn a lot just through doing it. But there there was an education portion as well. Um, I had to buy a lot of really expensive textbooks on grinding. People always ask me what good textbooks there are on the subject of surface grinding. And truthfully, there aren't a ton, um, and I've bought a lot of them. They cover the more academic side of things, like wheel construction and what's going on there. And But when it comes down to fundamentals of operation, it gets a little light. Mm. So what did you do during your apprenticeship in terms of projects? Uh, so we followed uh, NIMS for some of our projects guides, which is the National Institute of Metalworking Skills. And they have some pretty standard projects, uh, blocks with slots and angles you have to grind and radii. And then uh, a couple of cylindrical ground parts with male and female radii and a long taper. Those were kind of our milestone projects. But for the most part, we were just making die components. You know, it was we were on the clock making company mm. parts. But every six months or so, we had a NIMS project to to advance to the next level of our apprenticeship. And riddle me this, because uh, in Australia, it might be different. Uh, but when it came to your own tools, uh, or at least the tools you used on the job, did you have to buy your own tools? Yeah, that's pretty common in the States. Like, in, if anything, I think it's a bad idea because... Uh, that was like a whole bunch of stuff I didn't need to buy when I started my own business. <laughs> I already owned a bunch of test indicators and, you know, grinding fixtures. So I, I'm not sure why machine shops place so much emphasis on machinists owning their own tools. 
I could see things like Allen wrenches and you know some some little doodads like that. But uh, it's an expensive trade, and uh, that that gives the guy a lot of mobility when he has mm. pretty much all of his own tools. But uh, um, so yeah, I take it it's not the case in other countries though. Like you don't have a big tool chest of stuff when you go to a company that you take with you. I think in Australia it's probably split. Uh, depends on the kind of shop you work on. I know that if it's in, work in, I know that if it's uh, any sort of production environment, um, people like to standardize the inspection equipment and get it calibrated. And why would the company be paying for calibration on your tool when they can just calibrate their own tools? Yeah. Most places I worked, my my tools did have to go into the company's calibration system. Mm. So that kept everything kind of up to speed with uh, whatever quality system they were running. But yeah, it was kind of odd. Like I owned it, but it was on their quality system. Right. And it made a real headache for quality managers because some of the stuff I own is exceptionally difficult to come up with a calibration procedure, like Mm. my granite sliding square. And so stuff like that just, you know, got stuck in the bottom of the toolbox and made sure it didn't come out when when ISO auditors were around. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I guess we got to talk about grinding. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, didn't even start the topic and we went off on a tangent. Um, so in terms of the history of grinding, I have a basic understanding, but it seems that they sort of came to the scene a little bit later than a bunch of other machine tools. Yeah, a lot of the machine tool early development was kind of around round things. Uh, lathes and cylindrical grinders were where a lot of the attention got put. So early grinders, there wasn't a first commercial grinder for surface grinding, a lot of people were building their own solutions out of bridge mills or bridge planers, I should say. And a, a good example of that is uh, a Sterrett to make their measuring scales had converted a bridge planer to have a grinding wheel on it. And then mm-hmm. they could uh, then grind flat and parallel strips for their longer scales and their combination squares. And shortly after, Brown and Sharp then offered a commercial solution. But it it was interesting to see that a DIY solution like that kind of beat a commercial solution to the scene. Mm. But uh, yeah, the the early grinders, they all looked pretty anemic. The wheels were all line shaft driven and the the housings for those wheels spindle-wise looked pretty small. I'm guessing it was a bronze bearing. And so you really wonder how much grinding could that setup do? I'm guessing it was just for the most light of passes. So here's another question. Um, what defines a grinder? Why is it different to something like a milling machine? Hmm. That's interesting. For me, like grinding is still a chip making process. Like if you look at grinding swarf, it, it looks like a lathe turning chip almost has that nice uh, number six shape to it. So I guess the difference comes down to the number of cutting edges, I suppose, and the process of being able to dress that cutter and create whatever cutter geometry you want mm. on the grinder versus having to deal with something that you put in the machine, cut with till it's dull, and then mm. remove for replacement or resharpening. Mm. But, uh, you know, as to the physics of a grind cut versus a cutting tool cut, I don't. I have no idea there. That might be a more of a question. <laughs> All questions can go to your local material scientist guy. I guess from just an outsider perspective, I see a lot of grinders with a different kinematic layout as well. Uh, a lot of like V and flat 
weigh structures, uh, whereas most milling machines I see are either dove like in, in that sort of manual machine setting, dovetailed. And then when you go to uh, CNC machines or more advanced machines, all those machines tend to move to linear rails or other kinematic structures, whereas grinders mm. stay at the V and flat. I think the V and flat is what you see a lot for cost perspective. Um, it's it's you don't really need any retention to hold the ways down. You're you're not going to suck the part up into the the cutter like that you could with a, uh, a side cutting end mill. Mm. And so all you really need is very good guidance back and forth. And uh, V-Way does that pretty well. Uh, some of the more higher-end machines, they'll go to a double V versus mm. a V and a flat. And the Moore book, uh, Foundations of Mechanical Accuracy, does a decent job of explaining why why a double V offers a little better straightness mm. than a V and flat arrangement. Um, that being said, I've ground on V and flat ways for a long time, and they suit me fine. Um, but th- there is, you know, advantages. But uh, you're starting to see some high-speed forming grinders using linear rails uh, because they're not so much worried about dampening vibrations because they're taking such a small increment of cut. Uh, they have a very different set of requirements than something mm. like a big flat grinder. And then you see a lot of uh, hydrostatics involved with some cylindrical grinders and... Uh, obviously all the super high precision uh, tool and cutter grinders, which is, I guess, the whole other subject in itself. But Yeah, uh, the the Nagasi grinders we looked at are mm. hydrostatic, and um, Jung has... It seems like it's a hybrid system. It's not quite full hydrostatic. It's, uh, it's from reading, it's kind of a combination between like a hydrodynamic way, but with a constant oil supply. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's kind of interesting. I guess full hydrostatic and grinders, typically there's a, f- a fluid gap with hydrostatic ways. Mm. Uh, the weight of the, the table and the reciprocation speed is enough that at the end of strokes, you kind of get some, uh, some dipping. And so that's why you don't see full bore hydrostatic ways more often. And if mm. you do, it's kind of a, a different approach where the gap's tighter or it's a hybrid approach. Mm. Linear motors is something I'm interested to see more on the reciprocal axis. Yeah. And that's something I actually sought out for my new machine. And there's just really not too many companies making tool room size grinders with linear motors. Mm. Uh, Mitsui offers one, but finding even basic information about it was challenging. <laughs> so I kind of took that off the list. So one thing that I wanted to touch on uh, with more or less the, the the basics of grinding was why you would grind why you would um do that instead of cutting conventionally with an end mill or any sort of other chip forming process uh for me it's a it's a very low risk approach to precision it's um very very easy to move the increment i want mm-hmm. and quickly too and the feedback loops very quick so i could take a test cut adjust the machine and arrive at my size without much fuss. Uh, but really the reason I, I moved more my work into grinding than milling is what I got to earlier, which is tool costs, Mm. um, uh, tool costs per part even. So if I'm doing a lot of hardened 
high aggressive tool steels like a CPM or a hard hard D2, uh, the tool cost for hard cutting is significant. Uh, where you know I might spend a couple cents worth of a grinding wheel and producing those parts. And so it's just a very economical way to, to work with really hard materials. And I don't have to have a elaborate set of tools and inventory to handle those projects. I just have dozen or so basic wheels. I guess it's also a lot quicker when you hard cut something. For example, let's talk about a flat plane. If you want to hard cut that, um, the yes, you could probably remove more material, but to arrive at a flat surface, which often is one of the main requirements, um, grinding is is more economical in that sense too. Yeah, and there's some stuff I go back and forth on, some slot features. Um, I thought, oh, that might have been quicker to hard cut than it was to grind. But grinding also has this interesting effect for deep slots where a 6 millimeter wide 20 millimeter deep slot isn't that big of a deal to grind Mm. Uh, you know a wheel can reach down into a deep cavity much easier than an end mill Uh, you still have deflection and the like uh, but uh, that kind of feature with an end mill you suddenly kind of have to think about (laughs) whether that's how you want to do it or not Mm. oh another nice option is if you're doing form geometry uh, you can basically pick out what corner radius you want on your wheel. Like if you're approaching it like you would with a, a bullnose in the mill, well, a lot of times I would get stuck in between radii mm. where, where the the part's internal corner might be 0.8 millimeters, mm. and I had in stock 1 millimeter, 0.5 millimeter, and a 0.3 <laughs> millimeter. And so I have to do all this 3D surfacing work with a, a 0.5 millimeter corner radius on an end mill, mm. where with the grinding wheel I can make it 0.8 which isn't vastly bigger but you know just i get to pick out whatever radius i want on my tool and then dress it it's almost like having a little tiny tool grinder inside your cnc mill (laughs) on the table yeah and um so that's that's really powerful in my opinion yeah and then form grinding as a concept as well where you can have a quite an elaborate form on on a wheel and gang up a bunch of parts and go at them that's uh something that they did for example for the multi-fix holders all the holders uh were originally form ground and uh yeah if you think about how you would hard cut that or use wire edm i mean obviously these these holders were made in a time when form grinding was not only economical it was probably one of the only options that you could use to grind something hard like that but um, the solution stayed through the time. Yeah, and when you look at what a grinding machine that can operate the, to the tolerance you need cost compared to a CNC mill that has that amount of thermal consistency and accuracy, uh, grinders really, mm. I mean, they're expensive, but when you compare them to the same level of precision mill, they're they're not as expensive as that mill, in my experience. Yes, yeah, exactly. And they're 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 not an advanced technology either, like mm. an EDM. Um, mm. There's not much that goes wrong on a grinder. Like you know, I'll have in twenty years, I'll have some concerns with like servo drives and things like that. Mm. But uh, like if you buy a basic automatic grinder, like you've bought, you can keep that running pretty much indefinitely. Mm. 
yeah on my grinder i'm probably going to be most con- concerned about the control board or something like that less so the yeah. hydraulic system or the actual kinematics of the machine so i don't know i just find them uh, to be kind of a low maintenance not the physical maintenance but low uh low drama solution for mm. my shop but uh I was telling you, there isn't a lot of just grinder work. From a business perspective, you're not going to buy just a grinder, put it in your garage, and then start working. Uh, it's it's part of a suite of tools. I do mill work that then gets ground, and mm. sometimes I just do mill work. So like a mill has that advantage of it can be the complete solution where a grinder does not. Yeah, I found that nearly instantly with my machine that a lot of the parts that I wish I had a grinder for, suddenly I could just touch off and dust off. But they still had wire EDM features and mill features. And, you know, if you wanted to do like a turned feature as well, it would be, be slightly different, but turn feature and a mill feature, and then you grind. Um, but what I did find was that it elevated my total shop confidence um, by maybe even an order of magnitude suddenly i wasn't worried about how i'd get a surface flat you know there's been times in the past where you want something that's like 100 mil by 100 mil and you want it really flat and uh you have a go at you know milling but you always have marks for step overs or you put it in the wire edm and you face it off but it takes half night you know to face off that whole area and still, as as we've talked about before, might have a really nice surface finish, but it's not quite um, something on the level of something that's been ground. And so you might have to spend some time lapping or something like that. Whereas a grinder is, as you said, extremely low maintenance and quick. And um, to achieve the accuracy that you'd, you'd need to spend a lot of time on, on something like a milling machine is... Uh, yeah, massively confidence boosting. So one thing I wanted to mention, which I touched on uh, just a little bit there, was uh, taking really small cuts. Uh, in my experience, creeping in on a dimension, especially in something like a steel, let alone a hardened steel, on a milling machine is quite challenging. If you wanted to take off just two or three micron off something, it's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, whereas with a grinder... Um, especially on flat planes. Adam's far more experienced in all the other features, but in the flat planes, I find that taking two or three microns off is a breeze. And that's one big benefit that I see with especially the advancement of grinding um, over the traditional chip forming processes was that there was a place uh, when accuracy started to be more sought after. There was a place for incremental, small increments. of. Yeah, the grinders do have a very small resolution and how how small movements you could take, uh, mm. you know, whereas in mills, oftentimes you do have like a minimum cut you want to be taking and, uh, grinders are, uh, they, they don't seem to mind nearly as much. And, uh, yeah, that makes what we call development with dies really easy. So sometimes you'll be building a die and you have to, uh, adjust the design a little, uh, by no fault of the engineers, just materials not performing the way we thought it would. And, and you need to tweak a, a radii on a form or do something like that. And uh, it's just very, very easy with grinders where, like, you know, it'd be a, a bit of a task with a, a mill or 
setting something back up in the EDM and probing it off just to take a sliver off would be a bit of a chore. Let alone filing, just imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, what I wanted to also ask you about was uh, numerical controls for grinding. Um, From what I've seen, it seems like the CNC controls uh, reached grinders not necessarily last, but least effectively in the scope of time. You had really advanced, really like far advancements in five axis milling where you don't see outside of tool and cutter grinding, you don't see massive numerical control advancements in surface grinding. Uh, There are some really, really advanced surface grinders, um, but you almost have to break surface grinders into two categories. Uh, Flat grinders or wet grinders for making plates, and Mm. then the more esoteric punch grinders and uh, slot grinders, more, more freeform geometry, stuff like I have. Um, so like the, you can still buy from Okamoto or any other manufacturer, non CNC grinders. And there aren't a lot of large Japanese machine tool companies that still offer manual equipment. Uh, so the fact that plates are so easy to grind that you don't need a CNC control on them, uh, you know, still is the, the, the mindset in a lot of American shops and globally, um, and so, yeah, CNC hasn't really gotten onto those machines yet. And frankly, I, I think it can live without it. I certainly enjoy, enjoy the benefits of a CNC when I'm grinding flat work. Uh, I like having total control over all of my parameters. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like how easy things like dressing can become. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, if if I had to scale my grinding department even more, I might very well look at a semi-automatic grinder like that just for handling the flat stuff Mm. um but uh yeah when you get into some of the more elaborate cnc grinding um it it basically is there to handle the the dressing the wheel tracking on on the wheel diameter uh and then when you get into the really advanced stuff it's doing form grinding slot grinding uh, or in my case, like some of the three-axis moves. One thing that, yeah, you, you touched on that was really cool was um, the parameter control. On a milling machine, you're very used to having uh, really exact control of your speeds and feeds and even the type of end mill that you'd be using. Whereas on a grinder, the type of wheel that you're using is dependent on the dress. And, uh, well, not necessarily word for word, but the dress has a strong control over how the, the the wheel grinds and having a cnc grinder obviously gives you that um numerical feedback as to what's actually happening that's always a complaint i had with a lot of older manual grinders uh speed for for reciprocation on the cross slide mm. is often just a hydraulic valve with yeah. with uh, no increments on it, it's just like a rabbit and a turtle for your settings, <laughs> and like uh, mower. <laughs> and so like if I were ever to get to a point where I needed help in here, it, it's very hard to explain somebody. Oh, I go uh, a quarter of ways between the rabbit and the turtle, 
or I could say, well, we feed at 20 inches a minute, uh, mm. you know, so, so I like having a numeric value on parameters like that. Mm. And it makes developing a process around specific alloys mm. a lot easier. Um, so one more thing that CNC sort of brought in to, um, the whole world of specifically milling machines, um, was automation and uh, going from making one part efficiently to making an over overnight run efficient. Um, how does parts loading and automation look like on a surface grinder? I, I've seen some examples where they're using like a clamping vise and they're they're loading blanks. Um, that's usually around a product. Like I have not seen a lot of successful job shop or you know low volume high mix parts moved into a grinder uh i suppose you could do it with something like an aroa pallet pool and each pallet was its own magnet um but it kind of gets back to the fact that grinders operate very very quickly so let's say you do have 25 pallets in your pool uh if it can do each cycle in 30 minutes does that does it does that buy you as much value as you know, 25 million pallets that run for four hours. Um, most of the time, grinding isn't a bottleneck in a facility. It's uh, like you look at how many machines that facility has, and it might have one or two grinders, and then all these CNC mills that the grinder handles the work off of. So I, I just don't think there's as big of a need or demand for a high level of automation on a grinder. Now, mm. the, the where you do see it is uh, the Christmas tree shape on oh, yeah. uh, jet turbines. Tree. Yeah. Uh, you do see stuff like that getting loaded into a vise clamped and then it creep feed grinding that pattern. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's usually a very exact part and it, the machine's only doing that. I haven't really seen any die shop or mold shop imp implementations. Yeah, and one more thing that was always uh, in my mind whenever I thought about automated grinding was uh, how finicky that final part of the process is. Um, yes, you can get all your parameters perfect and have the right process, but if you have one bit of dust underneath your part or um, a burr poking a part up further than it needs to be, um, suddenly the whole process is void and you need an operator there i guess to well even if you didn't have an operator you needed a way to check that that part was correct yeah and i think where you do see automated parts loading the top and bottom parallel surface isn't critical like they're mm. they're grinding everything of importance in one shot um i, I can't imagine a robot placing something on a magnet and that happening successfully over yeah. over a run. So, yeah, lack of demand, lack of ease. So, for now, it's, uh, it's I guess, technically, it's all there. It could be done, but I, I just don't see many people wanting it. It's maybe better to have more atoms just standing there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one thing that I've uh, found as... Uh, sort of like a culture shock almost moving to grinding more and more parts is um, how little information there is on the type of wheels that are paired with the materials that you're cutting 
And uh, I guess in, compa- in comparison to end mill choice uh, in a milling machine. So I'm very used to flicking through a catalog and saying, okay, you've got this whole line of end mills that are focused on cutting non-ferrous and then this whole line of end mills that are cut, cutting steels up to 35 Rockwell and then up to 50 and then up to you know 65. And they come in these flute configurations and so on with their own strengths and um, non-uses. Whereas navigating like Norton's site or you know, Kinnick's site or any sort of grinding wheel site, it gets a little bit nebulous with wheel choice. Um, so what are your thoughts on wheels and how they're paired with materials that they're grinding? Uh, it is, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, unfortunately, grinding is kind of a, a niche field in manufacturing. And within that field, surface grinding is by far one of the smallest types of grinding that gets done. Uh, usually it all revolves around cylindrical grinding, creep feed grinding, or uh, um, centerless. Uh, mm. Like the, the high volume production styles of grinding. And so a lot of the the parameter help you can get would be for those processes. And uh, But long and short of it, reciprocal grinding on a surface grinder isn't that demanding on a wheel compared to some of those other processes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you move away from like a big company like Norton into a smaller company, you can get a little more process help. Uh, but I, I I like a lot of the Norton wheels. They suit me fine. And more importantly, they're easy to get a hold of. Uh, sometimes you can find this really cool wheel, but uh, you have to buy 10. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, a turnoff for a shop my size. So yeah, yeah. Um, there's there 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 could be a little bit of difficulty, but uh, I I get asked what wheel would you suggest a lot, and <laughs> it's uh if you're doing hard cutting steels, uh, and a lot of times it's from the perspective of a knife maker, like a knife maker is wanting to grind his blades flat. I, I really like the Norton Five SG uh, ceramic wheels or seated gel. Uh, I think those offer a lot of performance for the price. Other companies offer a similar product, Radiac. Um, they're very good as well. If you have a Radiac rep you like, I don't have any. I, I don't have any love over Radiac for Norton one or the other. They they, they both do a fine job. Um, so you know, I really like those. The the issue, the thing you have to keep in mind with seated gel is they have their kind of their own set of requirements. They often need a special dressing diamond, one that can withstand the the tough grains a little better. And uh, for just light manual grinding where you're maybe dressing once a day, you can get away with a standard nib. But if you're doing any kind of automated dressing, you really have to buy a dedicated seated gel or ceramic diamond. Uh, and then the other thing is seated gel is a very, very hard, tough abrasive. And in order to get it to self-fracture and self-sharpen, you have to run the wheel a lot more aggressively than you would an aluminum oxide. And a lot of small hobby level or small tool room grinders simply don't have the horsepower to pull that off. Mm. Or they're not rigid enough. Now, one Mm. thing you can do is put a VFD on your machine and run the wheel slower. And that will cause the the wheel to basically get a more uh 
chip per flute, I guess you could call it, of material, and that will help it to self-fracture. And uh, so I'm a big fan of the VFD. And what that also does is it puts a lot less heat into the part. Uh, So keep that in mind. A lot of people will put a seated gel wheel on and say, well, it didn't really perform any better than aluminum oxide. And uh, that's that's something I hear a lot. And mm. you, you're just not pushing the wheel hard enough. So with the parts staying cool, the wheel is absorbing some of that energy by self-fracturing and the, the grain's coming off the wheel. Yeah. So um, now that's a, a great wheel if you're doing, like I said, a lot of more aggressive cutting steels. If you're just doing like what we call holder steel, uh, which would be like A2, or if you're doing like a soft body holder steel, which would be P20 or 4140 or any low carbon steel after that, uh, you you really don't need the seated gel. Uh, Aluminum oxide would be fine. And like a 38A white wheel is nice for precision work. They tend to cut very cool. Mm. Then back to dressing, I get asked a lot about diamond nibs. the standard diamond for most work is fine. Uh, some people like a cluster diamond. Uh, the thing to remember there is in order to get the same topography, you have to feed like somewhere in a magnitude of four times faster than a standard single point diamond. Um, I don't really have a problem with cluster diamonds. I've seen a lot of good work come off machines with them. Um, my dollars getting spent though they're a little more expensive and i'm not sure there's any benefit for what i do over a single point but mm-hmm. if you have access to them by all means use them they're great just uh if you're roughing just make sure your your feed rate on your dressings much higher so that's one thing i wanted to touch on as well with uh dressing is the feed rate on the traverse and how that impacts and well, actually, what does it impact? Well, a lot of people say you can slow down your dress and get a tighter wheel. You're getting more of a burnished wheel, I guess. Uh, you're not getting as many sharp cutting edges, and it will cut a shinier, smoother surface. Uh, but there's a lot of rubbing, too. Um, at a certain point, if you're really chasing finish, you might be better served going up a grit size than trying to put a really dull dress on a wheel. Mm. But um, I don't get too wrapped around the axle about part finish. Uh, it's it's not really a huge requirement in my field. When it is, it's on a cut edge, and we're usually approaching that with super abrasives. Mm. And so uh, part finish with uh, a standard conventional abrasive isn't something I've had to spend a lot of time working on. Mm. Um, but another another easy way to improve part finish with a standard like 60 grit wheel is to just tighten up your step over on your, your finish and spark out passes. Mm. Instead of doing like a quarter of the wheel width, maybe, maybe go down to like two grains, whatever your grain diameter is. Yeah, and the opposite of that chase is for roughing and material removal. And the recommendation generally is a freer cutting wheel. So you dress faster across the wheel. Is that correct? Well, not faster. You dress at the speed you're supposed to. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
any good wheel manufacturer should offer as well diamonds and then they'll have dressing parameters to go with those Mm -hmm. one thing back to a vfd uh if you are if you do have a vfd on your machine and i really recommend it i think it offers a lot of opportunities uh you have to dress at the same rpm you're going to grind at i see a lot of people they'll get to grinding and the wheel's not cutting you can almost you can almost tell after you've done enough grinding like what a good cut sounds like versus what rubbing sounds like and so they'll tweak the rpm down a little bit and all of a sudden they develop like a a vibration or some picket fencing and so when you dress a wheel you're not making it round. You're you're truing the wheel to whatever runout in the spindle is. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a heavy spot on that wheel, which is kind of throwing the weight around. And you're actually creating an egg-shaped wheel, but it's synchronous to the 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 runout of the spindle. Mm-hmm. So the bottom of the wheel during rotation is always the same distance from the magnet because you mm-hmm. calibrated it with the dresser. Mm-hmm. Now, if you turn up the speed, that run out becomes even more exaggerated. So your high spot swings closer towards the magnet and your light spot swings further away. And now all of a sudden you get these skip lines. Mm. So just dressing and running at the same speed is a a good way to avoid that. That makes sense. Uh, when When you're doing grinding and you're having finish issues, look at patterns uh, am I building any patterns where harmonics are developing? Mm. Uh, is my step over a integer of my wheel width? If my wheel's 12 millimeters wide and I'm taking four, three millimeter step overs, that wheel corner is always landing in the same spot essentially. And mm. when I stone it, I get these striations down the part. Mm. Okay. Make your step over a non integer of the wheel width. Mm. And, now all of a sudden that breaks up that pattern. So always always look at patterns like that. And that's uh, probably a good entry point into talking about balancing. Uh, I hear it's a good thing. <laughs> um, that's where I sort of got caught up when, um, when I got my grinder and we talked a bit about balancing. Uh, I think the first thing I wanted to do was parameterize that and get a number behind uh my my wheel balance and say okay well how out of balance is it and it that's the key nothing's ever balanced it's just more balanced <laughs> yeah more balanced that's right i guess maybe i was approaching it to something closer to run out on a on a mill where you can put an indicator against it against your end mill and see how much it's running out and i wanted to do the same thing with balance but as i found out um it's maybe not as important as we think. Uh, I think on larger, heavier wheels, it absolutely is. Uh, I can get a 7-inch tool room wheel to not need balanced. Um, just goes right on my hub, and I grind with it, and it gives very good results. And that's not any voodoo. That's just you know reasonably tight spindle on a newer machine. Doesn't seem to mind. Um would balance improve things? Absolutely. But as it stands now, when I take a flat stone and stone the top of my part, I don't really get any topography jumping out at me. I don't see mm-hmm. a lot of high spots. So it's not something I worry about too much. Uh, 
Now, if I were really, really going for finish, sure, absolutely, I would, I would balance. But uh, um, if you're starting out and you're putting together uh, equipment so you can add grinding into your shop, uh, a balancer isn't cheap, nor are balanced hubs. Uh, Spencer Webb offers a very nice aftermarket ring that you can attach to a standard Sopco hub. And I think it's a brilliant solution. And it brings balancing cost way down. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not something I would jump on immediately if you're just spending your money wisely and trying to buy the, just the things you need. Mm. Now, if uh, the grinder comes with a balancer, and a lot of Okamoto's do, uh, sure, go for it. Um but uh, don't don't stress out about it if you don't have a balancer available yet. I found that uh, following one of your tips that you've said quite a few times actually, but specifically on the superb tour, we where you uh, relief the side of your wheel or you dress the side of your wheel, it did get rid of a lot of the artifacts that I was seeing in my finish. Yeah, yeah. There's there's not a very consistent thickness on wheels sometimes, and so just truing the sides of the wheel gets rid of a lot of the heavy spot mm. and um it's still not balanced but mm. it, you know you you knock quite a bit of the out of balance off when you dress it so uh that's that's a little hanging fruit thing i have to dress the side of my wheels because i'm always slot grinding with them but uh you know if you if you're just doing flat grinding you may not think to do it but uh it's it's relatively quick to do Go ahead, give it a shot, and see if it improves anything. So what about squaring? What squaring methods do you like, and uh, how do you go about verifying squareness? Uh, I guess we start with verifying. Uh, for the most part, I use a comparator gauge, uh, some kind of uh, single-point rounded radii that you rotate the part around, and then there's a, a post with an indicator on it that you can adjust for the height of the part, and you basically compare two known parallel faces to one another and seeing which way the part leans. I find those to be quick, uh, pretty accurate, and they're pretty painless. I always have one on my surface plate, so it's just very, very quick. My parts are always very accurate in parallelism, Mm. so it's not like I'm having to go out of my way to make those faces parallel. Mm. So uh, it's a good method for checking I do also have what's called a sliding parallel gauge. It's a granite beam with a uh, counterbalanced sled on the face of one of the, the, the granite squares, and it rides up and down the granite, and I use that to check squareness on bigger parts. And uh, I really like that because you're also simultaneously checking how straight that surface is. Mm. Uh, so that's for checking. Now, as for actually squaring... Uh, I use all kinds of things. Um, I have the grind vise. Uh, I go back and forth on parts it's good for, parts it's not. But it, it, I do I do like the ability to grind a surface and then flip it on its side and square the next one. I, th- I think it's a pretty quick way to square work. <coughs> Excuse me. But then I have some dedicated squaring fixtures. One's a, a toolmaker's cube, essentially, but it has a rib. So you can adjust the height of that rib to whatever you're squaring. Say it's six millimeters and your next part's 12, you just raise the rib up and you you then use a small screw to press against that rib. 
And what's nice about that is a grind vise isn't great for really small parts. You have to have a parallel underneath. Uh, is it sitting flat on that parallel? Um, it's it just becomes kind of a pain for small small stuff. Where I I like this uh, adjustable rib toolmaker's block for smaller things. Uh, that and anything with volume, it's very easy to clean out in between parts and get all the swarf out. And so I find it very quick for just popping a part out, popping the next one in. And uh, and then I have essentially what's like an angle plate turned on its side for doing what we call the, the third side or like the end of a long part. Uh, and then sometimes I don't use any fixture at all to square. I just do what's called step grinding, which is you identify the high side and you grind a step in that's equal to the amount of distance you need it to tip. And uh, so you can you can actually square bigger blocks really, really quickly, deadly accurately that way. So that's more or less uh, grinding in the shim. Yeah, grinding in a shim is a great way to describe it. We talked about it before. Mm. on the podcast but that's um that's something i usually reserve for for heavier parts um i i can sometimes shoehorn it into a fixture or clamp it to a block um but for the most part it's coming off the mill pretty darn square like under five tenths generally and so to just have to do dust like a tenth off of one corner to get it to sit square and then grinding everything flat and parallel, uh, I find it to be pretty quick. And what do you reckon about um, masters for squareness? Uh, I know I have now a couple, um, but it seems the method that you described in the first sort of uh, way of checking doesn't rely on masters. It relies on the fact that the two faces are very parallel. But do you have a place for masters? I have the you know you can you can calibrate anything for squareness you want if you have enough metrology equipment so i place more emphasis on having the squareness metrology equipment and then i always have something big and ground in my shop whether it's a fixture or another part and so if i do need a master i'll just grab something nearby and it's almost always square within 50 millions to a tenth Mm -hmm. and i could do a little stoning and get it better and that becomes my master for the time but i almost never need a square master and so magnetic cylinder squares cylinder squares uh i see a lot of people using them um i never really used one before people's minds are getting blown i don't know (laughs) (laughs) It, it does look like on some small parts when you stick that on like you're fighting gravity sometimes yes yeah uh, and so, like, I I, I kind of look at that and I think, well, what's the what's the big whoop? I mean, it's tilting the part over. It's tilting. Uh, is this really the best way to check square? Mm-hmm. Um, but I I really recommend some form of a, a sliding squareness gauge if you're looking to increase your your ability to check squareness. Uh, I think those are just really cool to have around, really handy, and. Uh, there's not much you can't check squareness-wise with them. Mm. And the added benefit that you're actually sweeping the part for straightness. Yes. So that that's um, made by a company, or is, it, is that the name of IndieSquare? 
Uh, Indus Square is another company. Those, I believe, ride on a steel column. Uh huh. Okay. Mine is made by PMC Lone Star, which is a. They they kind of had a reputation in the carbide and canning die world. They made a, a contour tracer, and I just always liked the company. They're Ohio based, so I went that direction with mine. Just uh, I I always tend to buy Ohio if I can. Um, <laughs> and then there's a third option, and that is Coons Precision. They're a Swiss outfit, and they have multiple options. They have a vacuum sled that mm. rides on granite. And I think I don't have I don't have the smarts or temperament to develop something like this. But I think if you had some know-how and a vacuum pump, you could buy a granite tri-square and make one of these. Mm. It's an aluminum pump or aluminum sled that your indicator mounts to. And it has a couple vacuum uh, holes and probably probably some kind of porous vacuum material to draw through and it just vacuums to the face of this granite and it allows you to slide an indicator up and down your granite square and they want several thousand dollars for this and i'm just looking at the sum of the parts and i don't know i'm just waiting for some enterprise enterprising young person to figure out how to make his own um and then they also offer an anodized aluminum solution with a, a sled, which that one makes me curious. Uh, you don't <laughs> often think of uh, aluminum gauging, but <laughs> no. Uh, well, I guess uh, if you kept the shop to a very tight temperature spec, um, it does make a little bit of sense because it doesn't grow too much. But yeah. then you're making a big assumption there. And they have some other solutions for like checking kinematics where their aluminum gauges make sense uh they have these things you can bolt to your table your five axis mill for seeing mm. how square all the axes are to one another yeah and I, it makes sense in that regard uh but uh shop around indie square pmc lone star and coons see if you can find something on ebay and i also wanted to ask about the habits when it came to grinding uh what is your what does your workflow look like? So I actually kind of had to adopt a new workflow with the CNC grinder. And uh, what it is currently is get out in the morning, start my warm-up procedures on all the machines, go in, make coffee, play with the dog. And then when I get back out, the machine is getting near its plateau. Seems like it takes about an hour to plateau on me. But I don't do any precision work. I do my rough grinding until noon and I'll rough everything mm. to within five tenths. And then starting about noon, I switch over to finish work. Mm. And I, I keep my shop very climatized. Uh, the machines don't really get cold, cold, but there is, you know, growth from operation. But by, by doing this roughing finishing procedure, uh, I pretty much took that out of the equation and when i switch over to finishing i could pretty much tell the machine go to this size and i can expect it to be within a tenth mm. because it's brought up to temp uh and everything's working so so that's kind of how my days go now when i'm doing a lot of grinding uh but as as for actual procedure you know you still have to have a feedback loop of measuring these parts 
some guys like measuring them on the chuck. Um, that's just, I don't know. I, I get paranoid with that. So I, I just pull them off real quick, run them under an indicator, see where they're at height-wise, and usually they're there. So uh, as far as getting parts on and off the chuck, that could be a bit of a procedure. When you're mounting something on the chuck, you need to get it very clean. And the, the, the number one safety rule with grinders is the wheel doesn't stop between parts. So make sure you wipe away from the wheel. Uh, you can, if you're wiping towards the wheel, which is the temptation, because that's where your dust extractor, uh, dust extractor is, you can almost run your hand into the grinding wheel sometimes. Mm. So by developing the habit of taking your left hand and wiping away from the wheel, uh, you, you pretty much remove that as a possibility. Now, um, I still like to use a chip brush and get the bulk of the swarf off the chuck or if it's wet grinding i have a little squeegee mm. and uh then a little uh chem wipe with some alcohol on it and uh i don't stone every time because i'm very 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 particular about how i get parts off the chuck so i stone as needed like if i notice a nick i'll stone it but uh, i mm. don't i don't obsess about stoning the table every single time i mount a part um, because simply you can feel when you, when you put that part on your newly cleaned magnet, it should feel like you're sliding two gauge blocks together. Mm. Uh, if there's anything under it, if you've mounted enough parts, you'll know. So, uh, you know, I certainly do stone my chuck when needed. I don't, uh, I don't want to sound like that, but, uh. <laughs> You know, don't don't stone a hole into your table either. And so, getting so, the parts off the magnet, um, that, I found it's quite difficult sometimes. And you the that can be frustrating. You wanna, yeah, you slide it off, right? <laughs> and that makes your magnet look like trash. It makes your parts look like trash. So I avoid it at all cost. Um, you have some options. One is like a, a vice grips are very popular, like the the fabrication type. Uh, or a, a C-clamp, and to try to get a hold of the part somehow and cock it off. Um, another is if you have any kind of hole in the part, to take mm. a piece of drill rod and stick it in the hole and pry it off. Uh, that works fine. You can even take a degausser as it sits on the magnet and remove any of the residual magnetization and get it to pop off that way really 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 thin parts you can hit with a heat gun and the thermal expansion will cause it to buckle <laughs> and pop wow um so yeah it's uh it's a frustrating side of the of the grinding experience yeah i'd never heard about the struggles and so i just assumed that everyone was doing it a way that i wasn't and so hearing that it's tough makes me feel a lot better um but I definitely, yeah, definitely did slide my parts off, as you can tell on the parts. But <laughs> Yeah. And one thing I do every now and then, uh, I have a 18-inch travel machine, but I optioned a 12-inch chuck on it. And I have oh. that chuck shoved all the way to the right of my travel, and then all the way to the left is my dresser. And I have this couple inches in the middle where nothing's really happening. 
I can, if I have like a really, really thin, longer plate, I can hang it off the end of the chuck about a quarter uh, of an inch. And then you can you can get something under it then to pop it up. Yeah. So that's a handy uh, handy element of it. But yeah, it's just, it it's not fun. And then it's sort of the final question. Um, what's the goal of grinding in the workshop? To make ultra precision mirror finish parts or something else? Mine is billable hours. Uh, whatever the customer wants, I'm going to do and charge for. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> most of the time, I I don't you know have all that tight of a for a grinder. It's vast majority of my parts are plus or minus two tenths, five microns, which sounds you know tight, but really for a grinder with a decent setup, that's that's not a big deal. Um, I get into some tenth work and a couple fifty millions parts here and there. And again, if you're set up well, it, it's approachable. Um, so I, I don't really feel like I'm struggling accuracy-wise with my machines. Um, so for me, the goal is just to make parts cost-effectively. And by removing a lot of my end mill cost and replacing it with a, a cheap grinding wheel, uh, that's that's helped me with a lot of these harder alloys I see. Yeah, I think that's what I sort of got sucked into really quickly was um, getting the absolute best finish possible. And I guess it's there's use for that, especially when you're learning. You're trying to figure out where your limits are and what's effective and what's not effective and what's expected and not expected from the grinder. Um, but uh, often, especially with internal stuff, when we make a fixture or when we do something that's um, just to touch up a surface, uh, you don't need it to be a mirror and you don't need it to be hyper, hyper flat. Um, there are other processes that can take you to that next level. Like for example, lapping, we have a, a pretty well um, set up lapping uh, station. And so if I need something to get to the next level, I can very easily and quickly go to the lapping side and um, hit it on a, on a lap for Five, five seconds, 10 seconds, see what the error is and decide what to do from there rather than just chasing my tail on a grinder. Having built enough dies and custom machinery, uh, too tight of a finish can actually kind of be of annoying. Uh, <laughs> parts tend to become attracted to one another. Uh, they're hard to break free from the surface. And it doesn't wear well. Um, it's kind of like a, a brushed finish on a watch might look better in 20 years than a, mm. a mere polished watch. That's uh, right. So it, it really, if if it doesn't need a super good finish, if they spec out like a 16 RA finish, shoot for that. But it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, you got a new DRO on Instagram. Oh yeah, the my old Sony unit, which I always liked. I thought the Sony did a really nice job when they made DROs. Uh, it kind of bit the dust on me, um, and it happened right as I was installing my new Parker. So there was like a week period where I had no surface grinder, and <laughs> like wow. I could still use the manual screw vernier. <laughs> Caveman. Yeah, but uh, I was like, this is really annoying because uh, you don't realize how 
spoiled you get with a DRO. <laughs> um, because you could just hit, when you touch off, you could just zero it and then feed down. And it's like, now I'm having to do math. Like, okay, I sparked out at 27 on the wheel. So <laughs> and uh, it, it got a little frustrating. Um, but the new DRO came in. It's a Heidenhain 7013. And then I went ahead and got the exact same scales my CNC machine has. Mm. And then I scored some replacements for both on eBay. So now I have I have both machines on the same scales. And then in storage, I have duplicates of both nice. of those scales. So that'll be handy. Um, but as I'm setting this thing up, I turn it on and, you know... It's very, very apparent this was not meant for end-user install because I have to log in as the OEM, and I had to find that. And uh, it, Very, very apparent to me. Like, this was meant to be put on by somebody like uh, Weiler Lays or somebody who has it integrated into their machine. What? And, you're, uh, saying, you're telling me that Demoth Tool and Design doesn't have an OEM login to Heidenheim? No, no. So I have to get oh. the login screen and everything made, but uh, it <laughs> it starts up and it's uh it's at seven decimal places inch, <laughs> and wow. I was like, oh, that's uh, interesting. And honestly, uh, the the amount of resolution it wasn't very jumpy. I turned it down to six, and then there's no jump, and I was like, this is awesome. Uh, <laughs> But what ended up happening is in the the calibration sequence, uh, I was just like really chasing those last decimals. And I was like, this is this is silly. I don't need this much. I'd be happy with five. So I turned it down. And even getting to dissect a tenth like that at five mm. decimal places is uh, is pretty sweet. Uh, my old unit was a half micron or 20 millionths, and now I have 10 millionths. Um, so... I'm pretty happy with it, but yeah, there was a period where I was like, I have all this resolution I need to take advantage of. Yeah, how were your parts ever good before you had the resolution? I know, I know. <laughs> I was driving blind. <laughs> your whole career flashes before your eyes. <laughs> oh, and then one last thing uh, before, you know, I want to circle back to to dressing and cleaning the chuck. Mm. So one of the things you see uh, when you do a higher volume of work with super abrasives, as you're dressing, you'll rip out a piece of super abrasive and it'll embed in the chuck. Uh, mm -hmm. So you remember like, you know, super abrasives, you run much faster than conventional often. And so these pretty dense chunks of abrasive are moving like 30 to 55 meters per second. And your mm. magnetic chuck is relatively soft and they will embed in you need to seek those out and remove them uh and a good way to avoid it is to just put a piece of paper under whatever whatever dresser you are using uh for your super abrasives and uh let it catch a lot of the the debris um i like to keep whatever tool catalog gets sent my way and <laughs> by the grinder and i rip a page out put it under my brake dresser um but what'll happen is these diamonds will be kind of sticking up and you'll go to stone your table and it will wreck your beautiful flat stone. Mm. And uh, that's a little frustrating. And so I have a piece of carbide with a extremely square 90 degree corner and I can just kind of uh -huh. slide it on the table when it chips the diamond out. But uh, you'll, you'll go to stone it and it 
it looks like a star, like shines like a beacon on your table. And so where do you get square carbide from? Where are these square cutting tools from? Well, it's just a blank of carbide. <laughs> like we had big billets of carbide everywhere I worked. And after a while, you know, they'd be EDM'd into Swiss cheese and they'd go to throw it <laughs> away and you'd snap a piece off. But, uh, yeah, it's a different world. The only carbide that most of us ever see is just round. And it's on the other side of an end mill. We had a new designer once, and he decided that the punches needed to be two and a half inches long. And with carbide, there's actually a grain direction to the billet. <laughs> and so it needs to be basically stood up through the billet instead of laid down. Right, yeah. For the maximum strength. And so standard carbide in two inches is pretty easy to get a hold of. It's like a standard commodity size. But he made this die two and a half, and he wouldn't budge on the design, and uh, and it it quadrupled the price of the billet oh, to go that no. extra half inch because it became a custom uh, increment at that point. That always cracked me up, and I remember going back in after I'd quit, and I, like that billet was still in the corner because they basically had to buy this huge slab of carbide wow. to get to get a dozen punches out of it. <laughs> Goodness. Well, customers paying for it, I guess. So. Yeah. <laughs> what a toxic mindset to have, but so fun to say. So with super abrasives, um, how much of your work ends up being super abrasive work? Uh, I, not much this last round. Um, mm. I did a little bit with a CBN wheel just to get a slot put in. Um, but it, it, it's either all super abrasive all the time or all conventional all the time just depends on the lot of work i get um but uh i'd say at this point it's probably it's a little lower than it used to be down to like 20 percent of what i do requires super mm -hmm. abrasive so and maybe we leave because uh, we're already quite long into the episode maybe we leave talking about super abrasives in depth uh for another time and we could possibly integrate some of the viewer questions if they do come and when they do come um, into that maybe B section of the podcast. Uh, but I just want to take this opportunity to thank you, Adam, for all of the information that you've shared. Um, you've been called by me jokingly a gatekeeper and it's um, very apparent that you're not. So... Your knowledge is very much appreciated and uh, you've guided me, but I'm assuming many, many other people as well on Instagram and all the rest of the platforms into um, the world of precision, especially in grinding. It seems to be one of your specialties, funnily enough. <laughs> and thank you. I didn't, I didn't plan on it being though. No? Like I, I, I never really enjoyed my grinding segment of my apprenticeship. Oh, why I, did we do this know. podcast then? Goodness. <laughs> no, no, this was this was supposed to be just a milling facility. Uh, it kind of got pushed into grinding, so. Oh. <laughs> and you ended up with two grinders. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's the way she goes. Dan Rudolph probably doesn't even like Swiss Lays. I, I think he does. I hope. <laughs> I hope, Yeah. <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I like grinding now that I have, like, one of the best surface grinders you can get to do it on. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, just it was never my interest when I was coming up through the trade. Maybe this is a good time to ask, what draws you to grinding? Um, 
as a business owner, I, I see what it can do for my business. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I can charge more than most people get off of a mill. And I have 12 tool holders, essentially. You know, like mm. when, when, when I look at the investment in work holding and tool holding compared to even a cheap CNC mill like my Haas, mm. it's, uh, it's attractive. Yeah. I guess uh, in your part of the world, it might not seem like it, but um, especially with all the sort of uh, carbide valley, is that what you called it? Yeah. You might, you might not stand out as a, a specific skill set, but in many other places in the world, I think someone who specializes in grinding does have a very different skill set to all the people around him. I don't know. See, like I still see like I approach it as a machinist. Uh-huh. Like I don't, I don't feel like I'm a grinder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just seems like another mill, but the wheels sideways or something. But, uh, oh, you actually have two horizontals in your shop, then. Uh, yeah. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Precision Microcast. Episode 11 was a long time coming and we really appreciate your patience in letting us get this one out. But it was very important to us to talk about this subject because Adam and I both had a lot of discussions privately about grinding and we said, why not sort of make it a bit more public? And as we said, we're really open to any questions that we might have. There's a strong possibility of doing an episode two or maybe even like a Q&A episode send either the Instagram profile, uh, the Precision Microcast profile, a DM with a message, or either Adam or myself at Adam the Machinist or Nicholas Hacko Watch, a DM. We thank you once again and look forward to seeing you at the next episode of the Precision Microcast.